Alright everyone, so that's page 814 in the Church Bibles, 814. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the wineskins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, Behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. 
There's such a great flow in, in this part of Matthew's gospel that we're looking at. It's pretty hard, actually, selecting where to pick up and leave off each week as we work our way through these chapters of his gospel. See for yourself how all these paragraphs fit together and flow on from each other in the reading today. In that first paragraph there, verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he gets into a bit of teaching with the Pharisees. Then the next paragraph, the disciples of John came to him, verse 14, and some more teaching with them. While he was saying these things, verse 18, about the tax collectors and sinners and the new wine and the new wineskins, a guy comes to see him about his daughter who has died. Uh, a woman interrupts that, that journey to that house and, and yet he carries on. Uh, and as Jesus passed on from there, verse 27, the blind men came to see him. And as the blind men were going out, verse 32, the demon-possessed man was brought in. I mean, it just flows and just keeps flowing in a way, doesn't it? Yeah, we can't cover the whole of Matthew's Gospel in, in one afternoon, can we? That, that would just take too long, of course. And yet somehow we must make an effort to see the connectivity through all these things running through the narrative. So, so maybe we can bite off a big enough chunk like we just did and, and draw around, a line around this fairly longish section that was just read to us in verses 9 through 34 and, and just think about all of these things together. And actually, I think we can uh, fit these things and frame these various episodes together in terms of how people are responding to Jesus' ministry, whether they are coming to Jesus or not, and specifically around the question of whether they understand they are sinners who need saving. Here's the basic binary alternative running all the way through here. On the one hand, Jesus describes himself as a physician who has come to heal the sick, verse 12 by which he means and interprets for us in verse 13 that he's looking for sinners to save. That's what he says. On the other hand, though, some people don't identify with that call of Jesus at all, it would seem. And so they aren't really connecting with Jesus and what he's doing and what he's talking about, at least not yet. Uh, and Matthew, at the beginning of all that, openly declares himself here at the start of our section uh, to be of the tax collectors and sinners camp in that binary alternative. In verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So he's dining uh, and eating table fellowship with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus is, and he ends up in a confrontation there in that paragraph with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a religious sect of the Jews who were hyper-insistent on everything religious, uh, keeping the law, upholding the traditions and so on and so forth, but they were very cold and sterile towards anyone who fell short of their own expectations. 
Actually, they thought of themselves as the polar opposite of how Matthew just identified. They were so self-righteous, so confident that they were without sin. They were following the letter of the law and carrying out every religious ritual that they therefore assumed they already had a right standing with God in and of themselves. They could never identify as sinners and hence their slur on these people that Jesus is hanging out with. Because of their high view of themselves, the Pharisees would have presumed that if the Messiah really was to come, he would be eating and dining with them, because they are not sinners and tax collectors like Matthew. There's the binary division here that we're talking about, and Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for taking that stance. He first explains that, in fact, the Messiah has come, and the Messiah has come for the sick, not the well. Therefore, only the sick will be visited by the Messiah. And behind his medical metaphor, as I say, Jesus' spiritual teaching is that those who are sinful are the ones who need God to save them. And this is precisely why he has come, to save. There is no salvation for people who are so self-righteous that they can't identify as needing a saviour. And then Jesus sends these Pharisees away to learn something. We imagine what a great offence that must have been to their great religious pride, that they have something to learn about the things of God. But Jesus insists, yes, they haven't understood actually this basic thing, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus is quoting and drawing out an old scripture for them there about this same problem he's dealing with with these people from long ago. It's the first six verses of Hosea chapter 6, if you want to get there and look it up or read it out later. But I'll read it out uh, for now. Hosea chapter 6, and this seems to be what what Israel's priests were saying way back in Hosea's day. Hosea 6.1, Come, they said, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Wonderful words, reverent words of God, no question about it. But what God had actually called the priests to do in Hosea's day, in Hosea chapter 5, was that they repent, acknowledge their sinfulness and repent. And if you read through those words, there's neither acknowledgement or sin, uh, uh, acknowledgement of sin uh, and nor repentance in, in any of their words. It's, it's very religious language uh, the priests uh, are using, but they're just actually presuming upon God's goodness to them for who they are. God responds in the next verse, Hosea chapter 6, verse 4, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, God says. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. And then he gets to the basic heart problem with those priests that Jesus is still saying is true of these Pharisees in his day. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And these Pharisees are well 
uh, primed and, and well-oiled in the matter of ritual, law-keeping and, and hyper-religiosity, but they do not understand that what's required of God is a heart that has truly and faithfully and penitently come before him. And they might keep all the sacrifices that were called for in the law, but they haven't grasped God's steadfast love and mercy that those sacrifices are predicated upon. They bring forth the required burnt offerings but have no knowledge of God nor no knowledge of themselves and where they stand before God. They are just creatures of routine, not repentance. And as the word of God become flesh stands in front of these Pharisees, they cannot even see who he is. Nor can they seem to find any joy in the sheer mercy of God that is unfolding in front of them for these desperate sinners whom Jesus has come to save. They self-identify as so righteous, doing just fine without God's salvation. But Jesus is telling these Pharisees that they are the ones who are perishing. Because the truth is, and this is Jesus' point in all of this, that all people are sinful and in need of his saving. It's just that some people won't concede that in the blindness of their pride. There's only one human condition on the matter of sin before God. But we, humanity, have somehow found two different places from which we mark out our ground in response to that one singular truth. Proverbs 28, I love the way that it captures this so clearly. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. We must confess our sin and our need if we are to find our way into God's mercy. These Pharisees are still facing judgment. And the religiosity that they have fallen into uh, is dangerously deceptive. We get a bit of an insight into that, I think, as John the Baptist's disciples come forward in the next paragraph. If the Pharisees have failed to catch their need for salvation, John's disciples don't seem to have cottoned on to the fact that God's salvation is now here. Verse 14, the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Can you see the danger in what they're saying? Even for these men who are waiting for God's Messiah to bring salvation, that's what they're doing under John the Baptist, they're in danger of falling into a Pharisee kind of way of thinking, focusing on so much on what we are doing, to be ready for God, that we don't quite grasp what God is doing to meet our gaping need. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Open your eyes, Jesus is saying. It's all about me. The wedding is a metaphor for God's salvation of sinners to bring them into the kingdom of heaven. And it's fundamentally anchored on Jesus, he is saying. 
God is portrayed as the bridegroom in the Old Testament, prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, or or perhaps most notably here by Hosea, whom Jesus just put to those Pharisees. God is the bridegroom. Jesus, though, is telling these disciples of John that they're failing to catch that the wedding itself, God's salvation of sinners, is underway because he has come. Perhaps John's disciples still see Jesus as, I don't know, the next new preacher or teacher or something. But he puts himself at the very basis of our place in the kingdom of heaven that he came to announce. He gives them two more metaphors here to try to help them capture what he's bringing as as something truly wonderful, something new. It simply can't be constrained according to what they thought they knew before. What they've been preparing for under John the Baptist is now here, yet they still seem to be thinking, I don't know, future terms or something of God's kingdom. Jesus is here, and he has come to bring the kingdom. His ministry is greater. His ministry is what they've been waiting for under John. John must become less now, and Jesus must become everything, but These men are at risk of getting lost in the past. Getting lost maybe in who they self-identify as John's disciples. They're modelling themselves and they're measuring themselves actually against the Pharisees, if you notice, in the way that they speak to Jesus. Instead of understanding the ministry of Jesus and sitting under him and under his mercy. If you think about it, both these Pharisees and these disciples of John are different kind of ways saying the same thing here to Jesus. They are differentiating themselves from Jesus' disciples because they have not yet come to him. Why does your teacher do this? Jesus, why do your disciples do that? Rather than just speaking of himself as the new element in these two metaphors, Jesus seems to be calling them to change and to come unto him, to become like new wineskins, to take on new clothing, to step into God's salvation. Because it doesn't matter how well over there one understands or carries out the old, or over here how fervently one hopes in the promise of the new to come. Everyone must now step into what Jesus has at long last now come to do. Anyway, well, Jesus is explaining all this uh, to those who need to be very careful of how they understand and respond to Jesus uh, and how they understand where they stand with Jesus. We then get interrupted by this whole stream of people, a great flurry of, of people who all actually model the other alternative that Jesus is talking about because these people come to him from their place of need. They fit in with his metaphor of, of being the sick who need the physician. But to serve his teaching point, it would seem, about him having come to save sinners. And God's blessings just rain down on these people in need. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. 
Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away. The girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and he took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men came to him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Such wonderful examples packed in there together of what Jesus explained back in verse 12. He hasn't come for those who've got it all together. He has come for those who have need. And all of these are utterly hopeless cases, aren't they? And these people must have well known how hopeless they were. All they can bring to Jesus is faith in him and and just call upon his mercy. And so all of these examples are getting past Jesus' metaphors and, and into the spiritual thing that he's trying to teach us here because they mark out a clear distinction from those who self-identify as outside Jesus' ministry in that uh, these people uh, see of themselves as having need, see of themselves as wanting to follow Jesus. And the other people over there see of themselves no need or they see of Jesus no closure just yet. The whole section comes full circle back most pointedly to these Pharisees who are completely missing who Jesus is altogether and and what he's here to do. Verse 34, the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Jesus spends a lot of time in scripture warning and rebuking the Pharisees in his day. This is just the beginning. But... He does it for good reasons, because of their self-righteous way of thinking. Because if they won't call on a saviour, then they won't be saved. It's as simple as that. And here at the end of our text, the Pharisees show us just how far away they are from God's salvation. And yet these scriptures weren't really written down for the Pharisees' benefit so much as they were written down for our benefit, were they? And so we should be getting drawn into Jesus' teaching here, shouldn't we? When Jesus says this most difficult phrase in verse 13, go and learn what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. He's calling us to self-examine. So we might ask of ourselves, where do we stand in regard to Jesus and his mercy and his salvation? Are we needy? 
Are we needy like all those people in the middle of this text, those who are just so desperate and so uh, without any other hope, but, but who know fully well that Jesus has come and, and that he can help and, and that all they need to do is just come to him and, and ask of his mercy and, and believe? Do we realise that, that it's actually those in need whom Jesus wants to spend his time with and have his blessings poured out on? That uh, he wants to exercise the mercy that he came with for those who don't deserve him and that's how mercy actually works? Do we identify as being sinful like the people in this narrative, sinful and in need of a saviour? Can we out ourselves publicly, even just out ourselves as plain old sinners the way that Matthew seems to do here and just just up and come to Jesus when he calls? Can we say with the Apostle Paul, if you know that scripture in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Are we safe in the Saviour's hand? Or are we like the Pharisees in that other camp over there, thinking that we are already right with God in and of ourselves, that he should just come and and eat and dine with us because we are so good? Instead of seeking mercy from God, do, do we just presume upon his goodness to us because of who we think we are? Do we look at ourselves and, and carry ourselves in a, in a holier-than-thou kind of way? Do we sit among God's people and, and just wonder and just think that they are unworthy and, and question why God would be calling them and, and, and rejoicing with them and, and pouring out his blessings on them? Have we become so drilled in the way we give and serve and do and sacrifice and so on to the point that we can't see our own need anymore? of God's mercy to sinners, let alone that that we would still have mercy for those who do confess that need? Or are we potentially in some kind of slippery territory, a little bit in between those two camps, in between those desperately needy people who Jesus came for and those Pharisees whom he didn't come for? A safe ish but dangerous kind of place like John's disciples seem to be in here. Have we started wondering why we bother taking such good care with our own uh, works that we try to do? Have we subconsciously aligned ourselves in some way with Pharisees instead of with sinners and tax collectors who repent and just enjoy true fellowship with Jesus? Are we so caught up in the prophecies and the promises and the preparations to get ready for Jesus that we haven't really just come to him yet and been recast as his disciples? Are we in danger of missing the kingdom of God? Where exactly do we stand with Jesus? We must ask it of ourselves. He is calling us here to self-examine. It's understandable that people in the narrative, I think, while all this stuff's unfolding, are still trying to figure Jesus out. For us today, we might think about these dangers in terms of where we sit. We know more fully the whole of Scripture and what unfolded from here. 
I think the dangers for us of that, of that Pharisee kind of mindset that might have been rubbing off on John's disciples and, and might be rubbing off on us now is, is probably most challenging and most pointy for us to try to think about in terms of how we differentiate as Christians our salvation in Jesus from our walk with Jesus after he saves us. The one is purely of God's mercy in sending Jesus Christ to save sinners from the penalty of their sin. That's why Jesus came with the most fundamental call that people must repent. We reflected on that last week when we turned back and saw in in chapter 4 and verse 17 of Matthew, that's how his whole preaching ministry began. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you have not acknowledged your sin, and your desperate need for God's mercy, then, friend, you must repent and you must come to Jesus as your saviour. He came only for sinners. It's only from that point then, coming to Jesus and repenting and trusting in his salvation, it's only from that point that we begin walking the new Christian life. This too, of course, is of God's mercy Entirely, but, but it's not given to us so that we can start to mark out where we stand from him according to our own efforts. No, it's in response to our new standing with him that, that he has just granted to us freely in Christ the Saviour who came to die for our sins so that we might be saved from its penalty. If we get those two things wrong, our salvation in Christ and our walk with Christ after our salvation, we get them wrong or get them around the wrong way, somehow forget that we are sinners, only saved by God's mercy to us in Jesus Christ, and start dwelling on our own striving after righteousness now as if it was in and of ourselves or something, then we're in danger of sliding right on past John's disciples and down over to where the Pharisees are. We are completely lost without God's mercy to us in Jesus. We must be very careful not to think we can ever move on or something from from the mercy of God that saved us from our sin in Jesus Christ. And our fundamental dependence on, on that premise sets up the basic Christian posture the posture that we have for the rest of our lives as we let ourselves be discipled by Jesus now. For if he came for the sick, the needy and the sinners, then no one can identify as righteous in and of themselves, but only in him. For this is how we are now regarded, only in him. Hard scriptures for all these people that Jesus is speaking to. Hard scriptures, I dare say, for us too. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us, that we can sit here and open your scriptures publicly. We thank you uh, for what is put to us here by Jesus and, and by all these people coming to Jesus. We pray that you would continue to bring us deeper into Jesus' teachings about who he is and what he came to do. We see here, Father, in this scripture that you have moved towards us in your great mercy for salvation. You came for sinners. We pray that you would weed out anything in our hearts that wants to be stubborn against you in that basic truth. We pray that you would help us to identify our own standing and our own situation clearly and that we would take on a genuine posture of repentance 
that we would humbly just come to Jesus and enjoy fellowship with him, discipleship under him. Thank you that you have done all this to come to us and bring us to you. Please keep us from missing everything that you've called us into and everything that you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.